Well, good morning. good morning, and Merry Christmas as well. Uh, it's a great joy to wish you a Merry Christmas. I love Christmas. Uh, it's great to see people gathered with their families, and just the joy of the season just pervades the whole area, and I love to see it. So I'm very happy and glad to wish you a Merry Christmas and glad to celebrate it with you this morning. It's a very special day, and my hope is that after we look at our text, we will see just why it is a special day. So if you'd follow along with me as we read God's word, uh, this morning we're going to go from a traditional Christmas text, 2 Samuel 7. <laughs> I was hoping y'all would get that joke, thank you. Uh, verses 1 through 17, I invite you to follow along in your worship guides. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Friends, would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, as we turn to your word, 
we do so trusting that these are the very words of life. And Father, we ask that you would bless our effort this morning. Take the preached word to shape us and fashion us that we might more and more resemble the image of your blessed Son, whose birth we celebrate this morning and tomorrow. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, on December 17th, 1903, the Wright brothers successfully made the first ever motor-operated airplane flight in North Carolina. And after four successful flights, the longest of which lasted 59 seconds and traveled 852 feet, the brothers ate a quiet lunch and went on to send a telegram to the family back in Dayton, Ohio. It read, success, four flights Thursday morning, all against 21-mile wind, average speed through the air 31 miles, longest 57 seconds, informed press, home for Christmas, Orville Wright. Upon receiving the telegram, the family rushed the news to the Dayton Daily newspaper. The editor thanked them for it and promised that he would include it in the paper. And the next day, the paper covered this world-changing event, that of man's first flight ever, with this headline. The Wright brothers are coming home. <laughs> See, possibly the most important event of the century, man's first flight, and the editor missed it with the headline. Now, to give him some credit, he would go on to mention their successful flights in the small print of the article, but it just makes you wonder even more, how did that become the headline for the first flight ever. They missed the point. You know, often our own Christmas celebrations can mirror this misplaced emphasis. Amid the hurry of the season, we focus on many good things. Making plans with family, getting just the right gifts, preparing the right meals. But we never stop to pause in awe and wonder at what Christmas actually represents. Through all the excitement and busyness of the season, we can miss the beauty behind it all. Our text this morning provides us an opportunity to pause and marvel at Christmas. David finds himself in a very busy season as well. He's recently become king, defeated challengers to his throne, conquered Jerusalem, and successfully transported the Ark of the Covenant, as God's very dwelling place, to Jerusalem. And in all this busyness that would rival any of our holiday plans, David decides he would like to build a house that is a temple for God. And it's here that God steps in amid David's preoccupation with many good things and calls him to pause and to remember some key things. And that same call is placed on our own lives this morning, as our text summons us to pause and marvel at the God that it reveals. And as, we'll do, as we do so, we'll see that the characteristics of the God it reveals in our text are amplified even more in Christmas. Our text in Christmas 
call us to marvel at the God who condescends, at the God who provides, at the God who remains with us. Those are our three points this morning. Now, it's important to know that when I say condescension, I don't mean the sort where a person looks down over his nose at others in scorn or contempt. God's condescension is not a looking down on us in contempt, but more in line with the, the Oxford English Dictionary's definition, which is to stoop voluntarily and graciously. Think of a professional athlete who invites a young toddler onto the court or field to warm up with them. You, know, you see it from time to time. We all know that the kid doesn't ordinarily belong out there. You earn your way onto a professional playing field. But because of the athlete's condescension, his gracious stooping and voluntarily inviting the kid onto the field, at that moment, the kid belongs. He belongs because the athlete condescended to him. This is God's condescension. And we see it here in our text. Notice the word king is used three times to describe David in verses 1 through 3. One through three. But then in verse 5, God refers to David as what? Do you see it? My servant. My servant. God reminds Nathan and David that as great as he was, and he was great, he was still a servant for the Lord. But even as a servant, though, it would still be a great idea for David to build God a house, would it not? David figures it's about time God got his due, right? But sticking with the professional athlete analogy, David's offering of a temple would be akin to a young fan, after being invited to the field, pulling out the change out of his pocket to say thanks for the experience. It would be funny because that's not how it works, right? It was a condescension on the athlete's part that got the kid on the field, not an exchange between equal, equals. But as silly as it sounds to give LeBron James change to shoot free throws, it is infinitely sillier to think that we can offer something to God Almighty for his condescension towards us. God reminds David that it is only his condescension that sustains their relationship. And as we look to the text, we marvel at what a condescension it is. Consider that elsewhere in Scripture, we read that all the nations are like a drop in the bucket to the Lord or dust on a scale. We read that God Almighty is enthroned above all. And with that picture, hear his statement again in verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, God makes it clear that David or anyone else could never give God his just due. Rather, the Lord's condescension 
solely establishes a relationship with him. God condescended to David and the Israelites by dwelling in a tent. And the God who created all things, visible and invisible, stooped down to dwell in a tent. And friends, I hope that you can see that as great as this condescension was, it was only a warm-up act to what we celebrate this morning. Because in Bethlehem, some 2,000 years ago, in the person of Jesus Christ, God condescended to us to become human. And not just any man, but a helpless babe. G.K. Chesterton captures this so well when he writes, The exciting quality of Christmas rests on an ancient and admitted paradox that the absolute once ruled the universe from a cattle stall. Whether the Old Testament or new, God condescends for the benefit of his people, that he might redeem a people as his own. And since God's love is condescending, it captures our heart when we see examples of it in the real world. In February 1989, then Princess Diana traveled to New York City for her first solo trip as princess. And she gave one child what was called the hug that shocked the world. You see, while in New York, she visited the Children's AIDS Unit in Harlem Hospital. Now you have to remember, this was a time when little was known about the virus and much stigma surrounded it. Many feared that you could get it simply through touching a person. And as Diana toured the facility, the doctor explained to her that many of these children received the disease from their parents who had died from it. And that because of the stigma, these children would likely remain orphans. Overwhelmed by the sadness of their stories, Princess Diana knelt down to one of the children and sweet, sweetly asked, you're not very heavy, are you? And she graciously picked him up, wrapped her arms around him, and he rested his head on her shoulder, arms around her neck, for nearly two minutes. The doctor later explained that that one hug from the princess did more to break the stigma than any amount of public campaigning could ever do. Diana condescended from the heights of her royal privilege to hug the boy whom society deemed an outcast. She did it for his benefit and for the benefit of all of those suffering from the disease. It was an act of condescending love that mirrors God's condescension to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we must stop and marvel at the love of Jesus, who being king from all eternity, put aside his royal prerogative and became human like us for our benefit. Just as God throughout the Old Testament dwelt in a tent, in the manger, 
we see that he has condescended to be like one of us. And what an encouragement for discouraging times. Our text shows us that though high and mighty, God condescends to dwell with the lowly. And friend, this means that there is no place in your life too low in which God cannot meet you. Whether it's the hospital room, the prison cell, the nursing home, or even just a lonely holiday season. The tent and the manger show us that God will condescend to meet us there. We can reach out to him and find him with us in our darkest moments of despair. And as we continue, we see not only God's condescension, but his provision as well. Now, we're not told why God declined David's offer of the temple. Seems like such a reasonable thing that Nathan essentially says, sure, go for it. But while we don't receive a reason for God's decline, the point God wishes to stress is crystal clear. His provision for his people. In the rest of our text, God stresses his provision 11 times with the use of the word I. In verses 8 through 11, he stresses, I took you from the pasture and made you prince. I've been with you wherever you've gone and defeated your enemies. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will give them rest from their enemies. God stresses his provision for his people, and he provides for them at his own initiative. And it was important to stress God's provision in David's time because the religions of his day, with their pagan temples and sacrifices, had a very transactional nature to them. As one Old Testament scholar explains, the ancient peoples undertook to serve gods by housing and feeding them, and having done so, expected their gods to assist them in whatever they might initiate. Do you see the transactional quality in this relationship? They believed, I do this, and the gods will in turn bless me for it. It's what some have called the N-shaped logic that governs most pagan sacrifices. Looks like this, I do this for God, and in return, he blesses me. But that turns God into nothing more than a divine vending machine. As we see in our text, God rejects this sort of thinking. He does not need a house built for him. He does not need to be fed. He cannot be bribed with sacrifices and offerings. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, he laughs at such an idea. He declares, I am the Lord God Almighty. All the hills and the cattle are mine. What would you offer to me? You see, our text takes this N-shaped logic and turns it upside down, conveniently making a U-shape. That's my best U for you this morning, I'm sorry. And in this shape, God provides for us, and we render thanks and gratitude unto him. You see, at a time when the ancient people viewed their relationship with the gods as transactional, God makes great effort to stress to David 
that it is he who provides for his people, not the people who provide for God. And friends, Christmas puts on full display for us the immensity of God's provision and that he provided his only son. David had much reason to be confident in God's provision. He took him from the field and made him a king, protected him from his enemies, and made his name great. But as much reason as David had to be confident of God's provision, we this morning have even more. Because God gave his only son. God provided that which is most precious to him for the salvation of unworthy sinners like you and me. God provided his son that we might know him, that we would be saved from the just punishment for our sins, and that through faith in his one true son, we might become sons of God. As one Puritan puts it, he became poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. And he came down to earth that he might bring us up to heaven. Friends, Christmas shows us the beauty of God's provision of his son. That it is not us working our way to God Rather, God provided his only son that we might live with him forever in heaven. God's provision sustained King David. And the grace of God's provision of his only son provides us an opportunity to know him as father as well. There's an old story uh, of a World's Religions Conference held at Oxford University. And as the, scather, as the scholars gathered around this day, they wanted to determine what was Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And as they offered up ideas, they were frustrated to find other religions that shared the same traits or beliefs. They, they offered up monotheism, but then realized, no, there's other religions that believe in only one God. And that, well, maybe it's the law and the strictness of the law. And they thought, no, other religions have their law, well, perhaps a holy text, and then again, other religions with their sacred writings came to mind. And allegedly, during this roundtable discussion, C.S. Lewis is said to have walked in and asked what all the ruckus was about. And when informed, he replied, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace is what separates Christianity from all other religions. And as the scholars sat around and looked at one another, they slowly realized he was right. Christianity's belief in grace, available through the provision of God's only Son, is what sets it apart from all other religions. You see, all other religions largely function on a works principle, which is if my good deeds largely outweigh my bad ones, God will reward me with good things. Again, this is largely the in-shape logic. 
we talked about earlier. I do this for God, and he rewards me with that. But the provision of God's only son humbles us. It shows me that my good deeds could never qualify me to stand before a holy God. But God's provision also shows me the beauty of the U-shaped logic. God provided his only son that we could be with him forever in heaven. As we sing in one of our hymns, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. You see, God's provision shows us that we think too highly of ourselves and too little of God's love. It shows us that we are more sinful than we ever dared to imagine, but also more loved than we ever dared to dream. God did not provide his only son for good people, but for sinners like you and me. We so often work under the N-shaped logic, do we not? But Christmas corrects our perspective by giving us a U-shaped logic. And it is this understanding of God's provision that makes for a truly merry Christmas. But wonderfully, God not only provides for his people, but he remains with them as well. We see this when we look to verse 11. Our passage intensifies with the word moreover in verse 11. After detailing how he will provide for David and the Israelites, God focuses in on this particular promise. The Lord will make you a house. You see, it's a play on words used by God to emphasize a point. Whereas David sought to build God a house, that is a temple, God counters by promising to build David a house, which is a dynasty. God promises to establish the house of David, a Davidic dynasty that will last forever through David's offspring. We see this in verse 13. If you look with me there, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then again in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And all of this is based on God's covenant love, as we see in verse 15. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Now the phrase steadfast love in our translation marks the unique Hebrew word for God's covenant commitment which is his commitment to be their God and for them to be his people. This covenant commitment to be with his people was first made to Abraham and then to Israel. And now, as we see in our text, David and his throne will represent God's covenant commitment to be with his people. And he promises that this will last forever. Now, interestingly, the Davidic dynasty did last for a very long time. In fact, some scholars believe it is the longest reigning single family dynasty ever, as it would last some 500 years. Just think about that for a moment. Double the number of years that we have been a country 
the Davidic throne had an heir on it. But as incredible as that is, God did not promise a really long dynasty. He promised an eternal dynasty. In fact, we see the word forever used three times in this passage. But after 500 years, Babylon would ransack and destroy Jerusalem as punishment for her sins, and the Davidic throne fell with it. You see, this became the great existential crisis for the Old Testament church. They wondered, what has happened to God's promise? Has he abandoned us? And it's to this situation that God spoke to them by later raising up prophets to tell them, I have not abandoned you or my promise, for I will raise up an anointed son of David, where we get the term Messiah, and through his reign, I will remain with my people forever. And this is exactly where the New Testament picks up. If you look with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we'll have it on the screen. It reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew immediately identifies Jesus as the son of David. He's essentially saying the one that you read about in 2 Samuel 7, who would reign on the throne of David forever, this is him. This is the guy. Jesus is the son of David. And if that weren't enough, we get this curious verse in verse 17. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, it's important to know that the scriptures are never less than historical, but they are often more than bare history. You see, there were actually more than 14 generations between each of the events Matthew mentions, and he is well aware of this. The Hebrew Bible had the book of Chronicles, after all, which contains a genealogy spanning over nine chapters. If you want an extended list, Matthew would point you there. But here Matthew wants to show you how, the, how God has been working throughout all of human history to fulfill this promise made here in 2 Samuel 7. See, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the promised Davidic heir that we just read about. And the number 14 comes into play because Matthew is using a literary technique from antiquity in which letters were assigned a numerical value based on their order in the alphabet. So now the Hebrew name for David consists of three letters, Dalit, Vav and Dalit. There's no vowels in the ancient Hebrew. So Dalit is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, while Vav is the sixth. So you have four plus six plus four, which gives you 14. And so Matthew's original readers 
would have heard 14, 14, 14 as David, David, David. Through his genealogy, Matthew shows us that before we ever can get to the Christmas story, we must know this, that Jesus is the promised heir of David from 2 Samuel 7. Jesus shows us that God remains faithful to his promises and in doing so remains with his people. This is one of the reasons he's given the name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant, his steadfast commitment to be with his people forever. And if you are a Christian this morning, then let the reminder of God's steadfast love be an encouragement to you. If God can orchestrate all the events of history over thousands of years to bring Jesus, you can trust him. You can trust him. And here he promises that he will remain with his people forever. The holidays can be a hard time for many. We have such high expectations for our celebrations each season, do we not? That maybe it'll be like It's a Wonderful Life at the end where George Bailey's singing Auld Lang Syne with all his friends and family gathering. And we'll do it again the next year. But truthfully, loneliness and depression tend to rise during the holidays. And if you are suffering from that, take hope from what we see in our text. God remains with you. And those aren't empty words, but are true, proven true in the person of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And if you do not know Jesus Christ, and you feel lonely or dissatisfied with life, the good news is you're not crazy, because you should. You should. You see, our hearts were made for God, and they are restless until they rest in him. I do hope that you enjoy the Christmas season. I love it as well. But let the true meaning of Christmas capture your heart. That Jesus Christ left his heavenly throne to seek out and save the lost. And Christmas shows us the enormous extent that he will go to to save sinners like you and me. Put your faith in Jesus Christ that you would have a place in his kingdom both now and for eternity. I remember a number of years ago, uh, it's probably decades ago now, um, driving around with my dad on Christmas Day when I was a kid. Uh, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time, so yeah, decades ago, sadly. Um, but growing up, we, we mostly celebrated Christmas on Christmas Eve. You see, that was when we gathered with family and opened presents at my grandma's house. So, so just by habit, I had it in my mind that Christmas Eve was the big day. That that was when it all happened. That's when the merriment and festivities were. And so on Christmas Day, this morning, this afternoon, with the Christmas Eve festivities behind us, my dad and I were out looking for lunch. You see, my dad didn't like leftovers, so we had to go looking for food. And to my chagrin, 
restaurant after restaurant was closed. I mean, we couldn't find anything open. It just didn't make sense in my mind. Because for me, Christmas Eve was the big deal. Remember, I was 12 and had little ability to understand. Maybe others were celebrating on Christmas. So the Lord's done a lot of work in my life. <laughs> so I was shocked. And as we struck out on restaurant after restaurant, I let out an exasperation. Man, this doesn't make sense. Christmas Eve is the big day for presents and family. Why is everything closed on Christmas? And my dad looked at me disapprovingly and cautioned, let's not forget the real reason that we celebrate Christmas. Now that was interesting because my dad never really took us to church growing up. But he wanted me to remember the reason that we celebrate Christmas and friends, 2 Samuel 7 gives us the reason that we celebrate Christmas. Christmas is the fulfillment of God's promise over thousands of years. Our text provides us the foundation for our celebration this morning. It calls us to pause and to marvel at the God who condescends, the God who provides for his people and the God who remains with his people. And as you celebrate Christmas, remember to keep that in mind. And as you do, give thanks for the wonderful truths that are on display in God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, and also in the humble manger of Bethlehem. Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, it is a joyous day, and we thank you for it, uh, for in the manger we see your condescension towards us, your great love for us, Lord, despite our sins. Father, would you work in us awe and wonder both this Christmas Eve and tomorrow on Christmas Day as we seek to worship and praise you for this wonderful time. In Jesus' name, through the power of your Spirit, amen.